Hi, I'm Mark, and welcome to Talk to the Bands, the podcast that is passionate about contemporary music. Our guest this week was a singer and guitarist in the 70s band Flintlock. Since then, he's been involved with numerous charity events. He runs his own music academy, rehearsal studios, and recording studio. And for the last few years, has been on guitar and vocals with none other than the Rubettes. A warm welcome to John Summerton. Hi, John. Thanks for being on the show today. Hello. So Flintlock were a 1970s pop group from Essex, England. Its members were Derek Pascoe, vocals and saxophone. Yep. Mike Holloway on drums and percussion. Member and Will. <laughs> Jamie Stone on bass and vocals. Bill Rice on keyboards and John Summerton on guitar and vocals. That's me. Yeah, I'm here. Apparently, they started out as Young Revivals. Is that correct? Oh, God, yeah. You are going back now. Yeah, I was about 11. Is that how old you were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, me and Mike um, were at Valence Junior School. And, uh, yeah, we met. And uh, I used to go around his house into um, – he had a little tiny uh, bedroom with a drum – just a drum kit. So how did Flintlock come about? Well, obviously, Young Revival, we, we started out – there was four of us, a girl, Shirley – and a bass player called Miles. So we were doing like little social clubs and, chari- again, charity things, you know, in sports centres and the Salvation Army because we was in the Cubs and Scouts and stuff. Great um, for our age, you know, 11, 12. Um, we even played for um, a big charity gig with, um, who's the guy off of On The Buses? Blakey. Stephen Lewis. That's how far we're going back. Yeah, it was him. He was the, he was the, um, the speaker and, yeah, we met him. And then as we were getting older... The girl, which is Shirley, um, I think she was joining, doing something else with another band. Miles then sort of went into more jazz and um, we're now in secondary school. So there was two boys in the secondary school, two years older, which was Derek and Jamie. And we used to go and watch them. We thought, oh, they're great. We started, they used to then come watch us and um, we said, wouldn't it be good if they come in our band? So... Shirley and Miles departed, and then um, it was the four of us, me, Derek, Jamie, Mike, but then we needed a keyboard player. So we got Bill involved, and he was from a separate school. Um, I don't know who knew Bill. He just appeared. <laughs> I don't know, what, don't know where he come from. But that, that wasn't really Flintlock. We then done a concert in Bow, so we done like three songs. This producer was in the audience, Roger Price, who was producing the TV shows in the 70s, and he was also the writer and producer of... Tomorrow's People, which was the science fiction thing. So he loved the band, come up to us at the end and said, right, what are you doing in three months' time? You're going to be on TV. And we thought, yeah, yeah, you know. He was only 14. Then we, the manager got a phone call, which was Mike's dad. And then, um, yeah, we said we start rehearsals, had to go to an acting school because they said we wanted, you know, you want to be involved in the sketches and do the music. You know, it was the old case of theme tune, write the theme tune, sing the theme tune and be in the show. And that was, um, you must be joking. That was uh, we done two series of that, yeah. And then we got signed up with a label. It was like the, the classic case of, um, you know, you're at school, but you're not. Then we had to have private tutors. And So did you actually come out of school completely to focus yeah, on that? Yeah, because we were doing like eight, it was like four weeks rehearsal. Then there was six weeks recording. But then, then there'd be a little tour or a radio tour, you know, promoting the single. Because we had like seven, eight, nine, no, nine singles out. Four albums between... 75, 79, throwing a couple of trips to Japan, 
and schooling was like, yeah, yeah. So it's only when I started researching into Flintlock that I actually realised just how successful you guys really were, how busy you were. Didn't have too much success in the chart-wise, did you? No, I only, think you had only one. Dawn, was that right? Dawn was the only, yeah, the major one, yeah. But TV shows, bear in mind there was only three TV channels then as well. Yeah. So you were on, you must be joking, Pauline's Quirks, yeah. Quirks, which yeah. is obviously Pauline Quirk. Yeah. But you were also on Blue Peter, Magpie. Oh, Magpie. Blue Peter, we done when we, me and Mike were 11, 12. That was Young Revival, right, okay. which I can't find anywhere. But yeah, Magpie, that we've also, there's another TV show we've done that I can't find any history on it. And it was HTV, which was in Bristol. And it was um, Ray Allen. Ray Allen and Lord Charles. Yep. Well, he, he had a, um, a cat called Ali Cat. And it was Magic's Magic. And he had Ali Barbar on there. And we were the band. So we'd be like, one minute we'd be in London doing a, like in RG Jones or somewhere like that. And then jump in the car. Quick drive down to Bristol for a five o'clock, four songs, then back again. It was, oh, it was, yeah, I forgot about that one. I, yeah, magic, magic's magic, but I can't find it anywhere. Can't find that anywhere at all. But that was about eight or nine weeks. And Top of the Pops. So Top of the Pops, you were on there a couple of times, weren't you? Yeah, twice. Dawn and Magnet, which was our last single, 78 towards 79, yeah. Now, talking of singles, there was another single called Sea of Flames which was produced by Mike Batt. He was a nice guy. Well, how did that come about? Not sure if that was our third or fourth single. But after the success, <laughs> number 29 in the charts with Dawn, you think, you know, you've got to follow that up. So we tried. And I think they got in Mike Batt to produce and write a song, Sea of Flames, which wasn't really our style, but it went down with the girls and the fans. But the, the previous recordings was all... All us, so the import was from us. The writing side of it was from us. But this was someone that's wrote a song for us. And we've got to play it like he wants us to play it. And the discipline was... Um, looking back now, I'm, I'm quite proud of the way we all worked because mm. it was very structured, you know, harmonies, picking the notes, got to get it right. Then he said, you know, we've got to, got to work quick because we've only got four days in the studio. And day three um, was, uh, I don't know, 27 violins and six cellos coming in. So you think that they're booked... You know, we got we got to get you know, and it, it was, and he wrote the pieces. He was changing it on the fly. That was a good good experience watching him do that. So where was that recorded? It was either Air or Morgan, which was in Fulham. Honest, Mark, there's so many. We had done. So, I was such a young age with so many different studios. I mean, Queen, the studios where Queen were, and Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury made us tea. Did he? Yeah, seriously. In Psalm Psalm East, which is Trevor Horn. So before Buggles. Trevor Horn and his wife, Jill Sinclair, who sadly now passed away, they owned um, Psalm Studios, which was now Psalm East, in, um, and it was a basement in Allgate. And, uh, yeah, Queen done a lot of their stuff there. So when are we talking now? 75. Uh, because we'd be, you know, you'd, you'd say, oh, we're in the studio today. Oh, it's Wednesday night, Wednesday afternoon. And we'd go in the cheap time. So they'd have the, the prime time. Yeah. And we'd have the after hours sort of thing because it was a bit cheaper. So we'd get there early maybe or they'd be running late and you'd be listening to my best friend coming out of the speakers and then Brian May coming out for a coffee and Freddie coming out. You know, it's like, It was surreal. And then sitting on the floor with Brian May playing his guitar with him. I was just going to ask, do you remember what they were like then? Yeah, oh yeah, just, nice, just normal guys. Well, they are, but they are now. 
But obviously that was early days for them, wasn't yeah, it? Oh yeah, early days, yeah. Yeah, he told me how his dad made his guitar. And it was, you know, before he even sort of publicised it. And uh, this little tiny speaker cabinet he had, which is like a little um, hi-fi speaker with an amp in it. That's what he used for his sound. And uh, I played his guitar in front while we were sitting cross-legged on the floor in the studio. Um, Roy Thomas Baker was the producer. Yeah. God, I didn't expect to go this far back. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty incredible, though. I guess what you call a roller coaster ride because you went from nothing to straight up there really, really quickly. Yeah, with the TV because we were like a TV band, you know, like the monkeys, you know, we'd done a bit of comedy, trying to be serious with the music, and then obviously gigging and touring because we'd done quite a few UK tours, Germany once, but Japan, we were quite big, you know, you know cliche, big in Japan, but it was teeny bop, and we was over in Tokyo. First of all, we went for a promotion tour. So it was like acoustic, doing record shops. And the second time we went, a year later, was uh, the tour. You know, we were full on with a band and stuff. But, you know, it was about ten dates. So let's talk about the end of Flintlock. One minute, you're on TV. Yeah. You're touring Asia, Japan. And then it pretty much all stops, isn't it? Yeah. Johnny Ron, basically. <laughs> was it really? He's got a lot to answer for, that bloke. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was punk. Yeah. It was the Today programme. We were on that as well. And again, they were so. We, I remember that Roger Daltrey stood up and was arguing about royalties and getting money. So it was still the same back then. There was still people fighting about royalties and the way the music industry was and who was getting the money. You know, it wasn't the band, it was the writer or the producer. If we fast forward now, you've taken yep. over Bosman Studios. That's opened quite a few doors for you. Yeah, it has actually, with um, other gigs, the jam night, which was good, which gets loads of people together. But yeah, this, as you say, this has opened a few doors with gigging, different bands, a love affair. I've done two years with them, only UK, but that's still still a good experience. And then recently I've been um, doing a bit of the Rubettes, but it's mainly Europe, Butlins, that kind of thing. Good crowds, again, playing in front of a few thousand people, having a laugh, playing some 70s music. Great crowds as well. Good crowds, yeah, yeah. Fancy dress and <laughs> then that's just the band, yeah. <laughs> You've seen what I had to wear. I have. <laughs> white does suit you. Yeah, I don't, yeah, white, yeah, yeah. So how did the Rubettes come out? Was that as a result of them doing a recording here? Well, they did record uh, their last album and some greatest hits here uh, with Bill Hurd. Bill Hurd, there are a couple of versions. So Bill Hurd's the original keyboard player and uh, it's, his, it's his version of the band. And unfortunately, um, the guy that was singing was Kenny Butler. He was singing with them and playing guitar, fronting it. And he had a wedding in Bristol. So they said, look, could you, could you cover? You know, he says, a lot to learn for one gig. You know, and it was Germany. So I didn't even meet the bass player, didn't even meet the drummer, didn't even know him, met him at the airport and done a gig. And then we come back, it was a fly in, fly out, really good crowd in um, Hamburg. About two, three weeks after that, Kenny hadn't been feeling well for a while and uh, he was diagnosed with, with cancer. So um, he didn't play again deteriorated quite um, quite rapidly over about nine months, ten months, and then passed away Not last November, November before. So, yeah, that was pretty sad. And I've I've carried on filling the shoes for um, until the present moment. You've been involved in a lot of charity work over the years, way before I've known you and since then. You've obviously got the Isle of Wight concert you do every year, or yep. gig you do every year, which is like a full weekend, isn't it? Yes, Fridays too. Well, yeah, it's been getting longer. We've, we've been going Thursdays, Friday, Saturday, coming back Sunday. Yeah, it's been it's been good because it's become a family. You know, I'm, we're, I'm pretty new to it. I'm ten, well, nine years in, 
it's been running for 57 years and due to the, you know, C19 this year, it's the first year they've not done it. Can you explain to people what actually goes on that weekend? It's a friend, he's become a really good friend, um, this guy that lives in the Isle of Wight. It's his family home, his weekend home, and it's right in Yarmouth in the Isle of Wight on the, um, on the seawall. But it's for local charities, so it could be for the church, it could be for anything, anyone that needs money, a local school. So we normally, since we've been doing it, it's always between sort of seventeen and 20,000 on the night we raise. Everyone gives their time up for nothing. Um, we get expenses, so we get the, the ferry crossing across, which is nice. And he puts us up at his house or a local hotel, but the money is just spent locally for the for the Isle of Wight. It's an entrance fee, and it's it's wine, beer, and and um, that kind of thing on the bar. Um, and normally has some local acts on the seawall, starting around about sort of five o'clock. I normally compare it, and then um, the band kicks in around about ten. We have a couple of support artists, and we have fireworks at ten o'clock off the jetty, which is spectacular. That's one of the big ones we do. We do the women's refuge. Every year at Allsit Hall, that again raises lots of money for the Women's Refuge. But in the early days, I first got involved with a lot of golf charity in um, in Spain, uh, which was for the Reese Daniels Trust. That was really good. That always raised lots and lots of money for them two kids and Barry Daniels. I'm trying to think of it. It's, it's quite a lot of charities we do. Dance La Fantastic, which is Moira. Um, we do a lot for her, fundraise when we can. My band will play at the um, the annual dinner and dance and raise money there. Now, Ida White, you met Gary Brooker. Oh, yeah, Gary, Procol Horum. Yep, Gary Brooker. That was good. And John Ilsley. Oh, really? Uh, Dire Straits bass player. Yeah, he got and done a few songs with us. But that wasn't at the Isle of Wight. It was at Hampshire. Sorry, I'm digressing. That's another, same guy, different charity. Okay. Yeah, that was that was good. We've done four Dire Straits songs with him. Again, it's a bit surreal. You know, you're playing on stage, you're looking across and there's there's John on bass singing Sultan's a Swing and you're playing the guitar with him, you know. It is, uh, yeah, it's quite good. We've got to talk about Elliot Randall, haven't we? Oh, I forgot about him. Sorry, Elliot. Sorry, Elliot. I forgot about you. Yeah, that was a fluke. That was just, that was crazy. Elliot Randall, just in case you don't know, he did the guitar solo on Steely Dan's Reading in the Years. He also did the guitar solo on Fame, oh, Fame yeah, Tune yeah, to yeah. the Motion Film. Yeah. Uh, he's played and recorded with the Doobie Brothers, Carly Simon, C-Train, the Blues Brothers, Carl Wilson, Peter Frampton, and, of course, John Somerset. Yeah, yeah well. <laughs> and, and Jimmy Page has been quoted, and he's, he said that um, that's the best solo ever in really in the years. Yeah, it is an amazing solo. I still haven't got it quite right, but I never will because it's uh, Elliot. Went with a couple of friends and the wife, Teresa, to the Giants of Rock. Elliot Randall was on with loads of other bands one night in the um, restaurant having some food and a friend of mine tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, what are you doing here? Who are you with? I went, I'm with the wife. I said, who are you with? He went, I'm with Elliot Randall. He's a sax player, a friend of mine, Joe. I went, oh, oh yeah, of course you are. I forgot you was with Elliot Randall. I did, I did, because he, you know, he gigs with so many different mm. people and he went, yeah, come over, I'll introduce you to him. So we sat down, exchanged numbers for the morning. So I, I said, like, you're my idol. I love reading the years, Steely Dan, you know, when I was sort of 15, 14. And then as I left the restaurant, my phone went. And it was Joe saying, Elliot said, do you want to jump up with him tomorrow? Like, uh, for the gig. Because he wasn't doing reading the years. He was just doing some other stuff. No Steely Dan stuff. 
yeah, it was a bit of a surreal moment. So I went and met him in the, mor- the next morning just to have a chat. The band weren't even there then. He went, oh, yeah, you'll be all right, as long as you can sing it and do the riff and help me out and do a harmony. I went, yeah, all right. And that was it. He called me up at the end and that was my, um, my little Elliot Randall moment. That's pretty incredible, though. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, it's a bit like you playing with Rick Wakeman. So it's, it's a bit, you know, that comparison is a bit like that, really. And we still, I mean, on Facebook, we have messages. He, yes, you know, we, we talk. You're not best mates, but he's, he's accessible, you know, and he's a lovely, lovely guy. And the things he doesn't have to do, that. No, oh, no, 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 he could have blocked me, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like so many other people. <laughs> <laughs> but I watched a clip the other day of that, and he was just so down to earth I know, and genuine yeah. on stage. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. Don't show me up now, he said. <laughs> no. That was his line. As, as if. Yeah, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was good. That was a that was an amazing moment. Talk about a couple of other charity gigs that you've been involved with. What about music for the Marsden concert? Because the lineup on that, oh. mental. Tom Jones, Eric Clapton, Van Morrison, Mick Hucknall, Nick Mason. Right, two years ago, right? I won't bore, I won't I won't go on too long. But two years ago, we've been doing the Isle of Wight gig and the Hampshire gig for this guy called John Colcutt, who is an amazing man. And um he's got lots of these friends, like um Procol Harum, Jeff Whitehorn, Gary Brooker, they're all his friends. Even even um, uh, Andy Fairweatherlow. He was in a band 40 years ago with Andy, so they've stayed friends. So he said to me, he said, I'm going to put on this big, big concert at the O2 for charity, for the Marsden. I said, oh, John, that's a that's a big... He said, yeah, yeah. He said, no one's done done one at the O2. He said, we, get, we want to raise lots and lots, like a million pounds. So um, he said, I want you to be the band. He said, well, you know, you're great. You know, John, and blah, blah, blah. You know, you'd be great, you know. So um, as it as it gathered up speed, it, it sort of um, all these A-listers come in, like, you know, Tom Jones and mm. um, I'm trying to think, Mick Hucknall. And, you know, it, it sort of got, it went out of our league, you know. <laughs> it, it, it slightly went from from sort of... Um, sort of professional to very professional. And, um, yeah, I went to a couple of rehearsals to watch because he said, like, you know, the band, it's their core band they've got. Um, and obviously he got me, uh, me and Teresa, um, an invite for the, for the charity. So we just made a donation. And, um, yeah, we had a great night. But that was that was him <clears throat> and Gary Brooker that arranged that, just the two of them. And, not, you know, you'd think there was a massive corporate company that, mm. that arranged it. But basically it was their idea, Um and what a night that was! That was amazing. I'm, yeah. just, I'm looking at the lineup now, yeah, just to even yeah. be there and watch it. Yeah, it was, and I was there during the day, you know, meeting these people. Uh, Mike Rutherford, um, Paul Carrick, Ian Pace. You know, he was up all night playing drums. Ian Pace was there, you know, Deep Purple's drummer. It was amazing, amazing night. It's time for the final five. So we're going to get to the serious bit now, John. I've got five questions for you. If you were to recommend one album or song, old on you, that you feel everybody should listen to at least once in their lifetime, what would it be and why? John Wiles. Music is my first love. Really? Well, that's come to me because it's such a, it's got a great, I mean, it's a lovely piano. His voice is amazing in it. It's got a great guitar solo. It's got great instrumental and it's a fantastic song. I I've just That's literally just come to me. I mean, I was going to be obvious and say Peg, Steely Dan or My Old School or something like that, or Ricky Don't Lose That Number. There's so many songs and so many genres, but music is my first love. That is just, yeah. It's very apt as well, actually, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, or anything by Andrew Gold. Yeah, songs like, so, I like structured songs, you know, verse, chorus, chorus, middle eight, verse, chorus. If that's, mm. 
again, any Beatles song really. But music is my first love. It, I don't know, it just says it all. What artists and albums are you currently listening to? Uh, the moment, the songs that I'm trying to learn, <laughs> which is Foreigner. Um, feels like the first time. Great song. Yeah, a bit of Boss Gags, Lido. Yeah, I don't know anything really, but still Steely Dan. I mean, I know it sounds boring, but the Steely Dan live album, they're just a thinking man's musician, aren't they? Yeah, Steely Dan really for me. Next question. Name a musician who has had a profound effect on you and tell us why. Jeff Beck from the album Blow by Blow because when I was learning to play the guitar, it, I thought it was just literally strumming up and down and singing along, which is what I used to do. I still do that now. But Jeff Beck, I think it was 74, 75, was doing like some Beatles songs, um, She's a Woman, with a voice, voice box. He had a bag on his back with a tube in his mouth, just doing them instrumental with hardly any singing. And a lot of the stuff was instrumental, most of the stuff, because, because we've ended as lovers. Another great track. Yeah, so Jeff Beck really changed my uh, view on guitar playing. If it was possible for you to speak to your younger self when you were first starting out with Flintlock, mm. what would you say to that, your younger self? Stand in the middle and sing your heart out. Forget everyone else. Don't stand on the side. Don't stand in the background. Push yourself to the front and, uh, and believe in yourself. If you feel confident, even if you don't feel confident, just stand in the middle. Since doing the Rubettes thing, two years ago in Germany, I looked round and the drummer's behind me and I've got two wingmen on me left and right and I'm in the middle and it just felt, felt good. You know, yeah. at 55, 56 I was, and they're thinking, yeah, I should have done this years ago. Final question. Of all the times you've performed over the years, can you tell us the one gig or show that is really memorable and why? God, dear, It's hard. There's been, oh, it sounds, sounds really terrible, but there's so many. Oh, there is so many. I mean, from a, you know, from a local gig at the Ball Colchester with 60 people in front of you jumping up and down to a Germany gig with eight ten thousand people. The Isle of Wight gig is good because they're all jumping up and down, 1,200 people in front of you. But I'm, I'm just trying to think of the best, the best gig, the best audience. I would say, only because I've got a video of it, is the Hampshire gig. It was about 300 people, black tie, with John Ilsley doing um, Song to Swing. Yeah, that was good. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time today. John, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And of course, a big thank you to all of you, our listeners. Our guest next week is a female vocalist and pianist who has performed and recorded with the band Thunder. She's also shared the stage with the likes of Dame Cleo Lane, Scott Gorham from Finn Lizzie, and Andy Taylor from Duran Duran. And for the last 10 years, she's been touring with the Australian Pink Floyd Show, performing in countless arenas in London, Europe, America, and Canada. If you'd like to find out more, then you're going to have to join us next week. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>